What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Sahil Lavinga is the co-founder and CEO of Gumroad, a technology platform that helps creatives earn a living selling the stuff they make directly to their audience. He was previously the second employee at Pinterest. In this conversation, we discuss the Gumroad story, the pros and cons of raising venture capital, why Sahil operates with such transparency, how he decided to start a fund, the economics of a VC fund, how to evaluate product market fit, the no-code movement, and his thoughts on Bitcoin and crypto. I really enjoyed this almost two-hour-long conversation, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is a new podcast. When the New Yorker magazine asked Mark Zuckerberg how he gets his news, he said the one news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. For more than two years and nearly 700 episodes, the TechMeme Ride Home has been Silicon Valley's favorite tech news podcast. The TechMeme Ride Home is a daily podcast, only 15 to 20 minutes long, and every day by 5 p.m. Eastern, it's all the latest tech news. But it's more than just headlines. You could get a robot to read your headlines. The TechMeme Ride Home is all the context around the latest news of the day. It's all the top stories, the top posts and tweets and conversations about those stories, as well as behind the scenes analysis. The TechMeme Ride Home is like the TLDR as a service. The folks at TechMeme are online all day reading everything so that you can catch up. So listen to the one podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every single day. Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to TechMeme Ride Home Podcast. The next sponsor is Trends. They're a brand new service that allows for a weekly report to help you understand market trends poised to skyrocket and how you can pounce. They've built over a 5,000 person network of builders, founders, and investors that are all working together to analyze businesses, share ideas, and spot tomorrow's trends. I've been playing around with it and it's absolutely awesome. You can expand your network or discover the next big business idea before it explodes. Head on over to trends.co slash pomp. Again, trends.co slash pomp. The Trends Weekly Report is a no-brainer. You also will get it right now for $1 trial. Trends.co slash pomp. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing my opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Sahil. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang, man. Do I have a treat for you guys today? All right, sir. Thank you so much for doing this. Let's do it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, all right, Sahil. So, so people who do not know who you are, there's like two people listening who don't know who you are. Uh, let's go through your background and kind of what you did up until uh, Pinterest and uh, Gumroad. Where were you born and kind of how do you get to Pinterest? Yeah. Yeah. That's 18 years. I'll compress into three minutes or less. Uh, I was born in New York on Long Island to two immigrant parents from India who came to the U.S. for their master's degrees. 
uh, they were both, they both got into finance. My mom was a CPA. My dad became an investment banker. I ended up growing mostly, uh, growing up mostly abroad in Singapore, uh, which is where my parents are, are still at. Uh, went to USC for computer science and computer engineering. I had started in, in high school making iPhone apps. That was sort of the big aha moment for me is when I saw that sort of famous Steve Jobs presentation in 20, 2007. Uh, you know, the internet communications device or whatever he called it at the time, uh, which, uh, you know, made it, made it possible for me to basically sell directly to, to, to the internet, like just to people, you know, I didn't even know, right. I could just make an app and then Apple would handle like sort of all the other stuff, but it's sort of, I didn't realize was a sort of a fundamental theme in my life was kind of trying to make that happen for other people, uh, until recently, uh, got to, so I started making iPhone apps, uh, went to USC, uh, Ben, the CEO of Pinterest, emailed me one day. He saw an app that I made, got to the top of Hacker News, this app called Data, which I built to sort of track all the numerical data points in your life on a daily basis, sort of quantified self, that sort of movement. Uh, he sent me an email saying, hey, you know, we work on this thing called Pinterest. It helps you collect, organize, share the things that you love. You know, it was just a few people at the time. You know, this is uh, fall of 2010, so they didn't have an iPhone app. Instagram had just sort of launched around then. And I said, sure, like I'll charge you $4,000, uh, make Pinterest for iPhone. Uh, that was uh, not enough time nor money for me to, to actually finish the project. I was, uh, didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but I ended up joining full time in January, moved up to the, to, to the Bay, uh, was uh, employee number two over there, built Pinterest for iPhone, uh, among a few other things. And yeah, that's kind of how I got to, uh, how I got to, uh, Silicon Valley. Why did you leave school and move to Silicon Valley and actually go join Pinterest? Yeah, I mean, I so I really believed when I went to USC, I was going to finish. Like, I was not that kind of person who was like, I'm just going to go and join a startup or do my own thing. I was very sold on the degree at that point. Uh, what changed things was, I mean, one, I didn't really know, like, wow, these startups would have really genuinely just like reach out to a freshman, right? Uh, it turns out in hindsight, like there was so like so much demand, so little supply on the iOS engineering and design side that that they they had sort of capped out on people in the bay, and they had to kind of find these these other folks. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I mean the way I, I sort of pitched it to my mom and, and and myself was, look, I'm gonna I don't know if this is the path for me, right? Like I still don't know if like if startups or whatever this thing ends up being is where I want to be in ten years, and it's gonna take me. 10 years to go like, I'm going to go, I'm just going to take four years to graduate. Then I'm going to go work at like Google or something for like three or four years. I'm going to go to as like a startup, you know, for like three or four years. And I'm going to start my own company. Like that's sort of like the flow that I saw. Uh, and, and how, like how bad would it be if I sort of spent 10 years and then realized like, actually, no, this is not what I want to do at all. Uh, and I don't know if that was me just like playing games to myself or like I was trying to like come up with a reason to sort of, I've, I've noticed myself doing that in a couple other license instances as well. But yeah, I was kind of like, I can find out now I can get paid for it instead of paying for it. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I, yeah, I just thought, you know, like worst case, this is like a gap year, right? Like I joined this company, I get paid, I do it for a year. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, I can go back to school. Right. Like I have a sort of a newly established safety net at this point. Uh, and you know, USC is not going to say no to that. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I pitched it pitched to everybody and uh and uh yeah it was a 
it worked. You know, I have yet to go back. I think I'm technically still on a leave of absence. Like USC, you know, gives me a phone call asking for money. So I think they consider me an alumni, but also, I don't know. I don't know how (laughs) over there. (laughs) What was it like when you got to Pinterest, right? So you get there, uh, people see this, you know, massive company and and great success story today, but you got there and you were employee number two. What, what, What is it like? Yeah, I mean, people ask me this all the time. Like, how was it like working, you know, in the early days of Pinterest? And it's like, well, like, I, I was I was just watching Hamilton. And it's like, it's it reminded, I don't want to make this kind of, I don't know, maybe this is not the most uh, uncouth analogy, but, like, they didn't know what they were doing, right? Like, they didn't know what would have happened later, right? And so I think there is, there's this sort of, like, when you're in it, you're just in it. Like, you're just spending time. Like, you're just building stuff. It's like four or five people in a room right in like a living room of like a Palo Alto apartment with a roommate right and we're just like building you know we're just like shipping a website right like we're just it's like a Django app and you know we have a bunch of users at the time even right it's still early but we had you know tens of thousands of users engagement was really cool we had some money in the bank but it was you know it's like especially consumer it's like you don't uh, you don't know what works in that in that space it's really hard to predict so it's like okay yeah we'll just you know keep doing this thing like I was just shipping you know, features every day I'd come in, you know, like nine, 10 in the morning, like work, you know, get launch, work until six, seven, and then leave, you know, like it was just not that different than what you do anywhere else. Right. It's just like, and it's interesting, even Gumroad now, like people ask me and I'm like, look, it's the same. Like Gumroad could be 30 times bigger in volume and scale. And my job would roughly be identical. That's the beauty of software. (laughs) Like that's the point of automation, right, is to, to make it so that you can do these things that are affecting, you know, way more people, but it's like the factory doing all the work, right? You're, you're still hitting the stop start button like you normally would, right? It's just like the throughput is, is a lot higher. Obviously, it's not identical, but it becomes, uh, it's, it's sort of like a 20% bump in your sort of like to, to your organizational competency to get to a 10x sort of bump in like, you know, the, the sort of value creation metric right the kpi that you're going after it's really normal you know it's really normal uh at least in my in my world and you know vcs will come by and like meet the company and i would like chat with like matt colder from benchmark or whatever but it was very normal right uh i think that it's actually a problem that i have because i've never experienced nothing anything except that right like i was at pinterest and i started gumroad and that's all and i remember even at pinterest i was like this thing's going to be massive like i think this is going to be a, a, a multi-billion dollar company and even like other employees were like, yo, like we've been at companies before and we know this is your first run, but this happens calm. This is a common occurrence where you get super excited. You have all these crazy metrics in the beginning. And then for whatever reason, it doesn't work. And so just like, you know, like just hold on, hold on to your horses. We're like a $5 million company at this point. Right. Uh, and I was like, no, this is it. This is, and it, it was it. Right. But yeah, I mean, who knows, right? Was that me like with this crazy insight or did I just kind of get lucky and now I got lucky. So that's why you're listening to me talk today, right? Like it's hard to, it's hard to kind of detach those things. It's not falsifiable. Yeah. And so what's so interesting to me about your story is uh, you were there early. You did see the metrics, like you did have that insight of, Hey, this is going to be a, a billion dollar company or whatever, but then you chose to leave. Right. Yeah. And, and um, maybe talk a little bit about like, when you first started to think about potentially leaving, like what was the um, thought process there? And then was there some event or, or idea or, or something uh, that kind of pushed you over the edge and said, I got to go do this right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I really built Gumroad as a weekend project. I had a bunch of these weekend projects that every few weeks I would sort of like hack on something just to learn like Python or learn a skill. You know, I would basically do that and I'd meet sort of random people from Hacker News and Mountain View and stuff. Like that, those were my weekends. And, uh, and I built Gumroad and that was the first project where the next weekend when I had sort of blocked off the time to work on a new thing, I was more excited about going back to that old thing. That was the first time out of, I don't know, 10, 20 different little, little ideas. And so there was something there, right? There was something really interesting about, there was something about that idea and, and sort of like now it might be more obvious, like the app store basically solved all of these logistical problems for me so I could just go make stuff and sell that stuff. I think there was sort of a, a connection that I didn't really see there uh, with Gumroad and sort of enabling that same sort of thing for creators, uh, content creators mostly. But yeah, I just, I, it was really, it wasn't about leaving Pinterest, right? It was, it was like, I wanna, I have this opportunity to start a company and similar, similar to like Pinterest bringing me out of school, it was like such a good opportunity for me uh, that it just was hard to say no to. And I wouldn't have said yes to like a subpar company, right? It's just like, oh, this is only worth it if it really is like the activation energy has to sort of like supersede all of that. And I think Gumroad was kind of like that. And like investors have started pinging me about it saying, hey, like we saw this thing on Hacker News, like we see you're an early employee at Pinterest, would you ever consider leaving? And then honestly, I'd say the third sort of element was like, I think I was just like a kind of a young, stupid kid, right? Like I joined a pinch, uh, a, a startup right out of, you know, I was 18, second employee at this company that was, you know, on this crazy growth trajectory, uh, you know? And so I was like, I did it once, like, why can't I do it again? Right. And I'm going to have like hundred X the amount of options in this other company. Right. So like, I don't even have to get that close. It's going to be worth more. And, you know, and it's actually interesting. I think, I think what will probably happen as they will roughly net out in value my, my, like if I just stayed at Pinterest and uh, but 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 like the amount of learning that I've had is just fundamentally different right like there, there's something about starting a company and being the being the first you know sort of the being responsible for everything that uh you know you uh you just learn way more and like way more people know who I am than if I was just like you know sort of an early employee at Pinterest as you went through the decision-making process, like what was the original idea for Gumroad and what kind of um, did you actually, when you left, what was built and, and kind of what was more of a, a vision, uh, but not yet built? Yeah. I mean, it was really simple. The way that I thought about it initially was it's bit.ly plus a credit card form, right? So basically all of these people are building their audiences on social media directly. Some of them don't even have websites. You know, they just have a Twitter account, YouTube account, Pinterest account, Reddit account, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so like all of these e-commerce platforms, like they sort of required a website, right? Like a PayPal button, where would you put it on your website? Like uh, this, where would you put it on your blog? You know, all these kind of things. Uh, and so I was like, this doesn't make sense for this new world where everyone is just getting started building an audience. They might have millions of, of followers that want to give them money and yet don't have a website, right? And so that was like the thing was like, okay, what, what do people use to kind of share content? Bitly, like, okay, Bitly plus credit card, you know, before they get to the sort of the, the end content, like let's build that. And so that's all Gumroad was like super, super simple. I had all these ideas for like, what could that enable? But I think, I think when you democratize something, you just have no idea, right? Like you, you have no idea like what, it, what the consumer sort of behavior is going to look like, what the traction is going to be, but you're making something way easier way more accessible 
and then you do it and then you see it. Well, okay. Like how, cause you don't know how many people like my, my vision was like, there's all this content out there that creators have sitting on their computers that they don't currently sell because they're not at that level, that activation energy to kind of like create a storefront, get a domain, do a brand a logo, you know, have a bunch of SKUs, right? Like really start a business effectively. And they just want a lemonade stand, right? Like that's all they want. They want to just kind of try all this thing out. How much of that is there? And I don't know because these people have done it privately. They don't sort of share this stuff publicly. And so that was kind of the thing was like, I'm just going to go. And that's how I kind of pitched to investors uh, like Naval and Max Left. And I was like, look, I don't know where this is going, but there's something interesting about sort of just making it. What, what if it was, you know, five minutes to create a storefront, right? What, what happens if you do that? Uh, and we'll see, right? This is sort of like heyday of Bitcoin. Like I think when government started, actually one of the guys who reached out to me in those days was this guy, Brian, who was an engineer at Airbnb, who was interested. He was like, hey, does, have you ever thought about doing a Bitcoin thing? I really wanted to get into this crypto thing. I think Bitcoin was like 70 cents at the time. And I said, you know, I'm not, I, it's interesting, but it's early and like, I don't know what's going to happen. So he ended up starting a, a company called Coinbase, uh, which did pretty well. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, there's, there's, you just don't know, right? Like you don't know where the people keep, it's like even the stock market, right? Like people keep t trying to say, oh, this is why. And it's just like, no, you don't know. It's a complex system. And if you knew why, you know, you wouldn't be telling anybody, honestly, like, that they, you know, that you would, you would be, uh, you know, calling or shorting the market, you know, on a daily basis. If you really, if you really had the sort of conviction behind it. Yeah, the, the one thing, though, that I think you did have, um, at least it sounds like uh, an idea that was going to continue, was this uh, kind of idea of creators and audience building. And, and like you were basically betting on like a macro trend there. Yeah. And if that was going to go away, then this idea specifically probably wouldn't work. But if that accelerated as now with hindsight bias like, or, or hindsight clarity like it did, this was going to be something that could be very valuable, right? Yeah. And so maybe talk a little bit like why did you think that that was going to continue rather than yeah. Really disappear. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's it's finding like the through lines, just like the, the trend lines of society, right? And it's like something that's hard is going to get easier over time. Something that's expensive is going to get cheaper over time. Something that only you know companies with hundred plus employees can do is is going to companies with ten employees or one employee eventually are going to be able. Right. And so it was all, it was, it was like finding those, those things. And, and, and really, I really believed like the insight I think I have, if I sort of had to sum it up in a sentence was everyone was connecting directly to their audiences, right? Musicians, designers, writers, filmmakers, stand-up comedians, everyone was, it was building a direct link to their audience, right? Imagine 10, 15 years ago, if you were Justin Bieber and you wanted to talk to your audience, you'd have to do like an interview with like a people magazine, right? And now you could just go on Twitter, Instagram, as much as you want and have a direct relationship with them. And so, but, but all of the commerce was still traditional, right? So it's like, you'd still sell through like, like radio, record store, label, publishing house. Like there are all these sort of traditional things. And, and, and if you look at the economics of it, right? The artists make very little as a, as a percentage of sort of the volume that they're really driving. And so I said, this is weird. Like there's all of this, this sort of like inefficiency in the commerce side there's all of this efficiency being brought into this sort of communication discovery side. And so my guess is eventually this stuff is going to get disintermediated, right? Like you're not going to need 
uh, a middleman. You're not going to need a label potentially. You're not going to need a publishing house to do certain things because a lot of these ideas aren't going to make sense in this new world, right? Where you where you just don't need it anymore, right? Like and to me, that's always really interesting. Like, what if you just yeah? Like, who who? What do we not need? Like, what is going away? I think is a really interesting framing because that's that's a lot. A lot of that is what innovation is, right? Like, what if you don't need, uh, you know. Uh, a, a dishwasher used to refer to a human being, right? It's often still does, but you know what I mean? Like a computer actually used to be a human being, right? Like these are people and jobs that we don't need for our society to function anymore. And that's great because those people can go do something else, right? That, that is sort of a better use of their time, um, more creative use of their time. And so that was kind of the insight was like, there's clearly this shift happening that I don't see slowing down, which is every single person it's still happening, right? Every single person is, is gonna connect directly with their audience via their blog, their newsletter, and like the internet is gonna get better and better and better at finding the right connections. Uh, you know, you're gonna, like, it doesn't make sense to me that like your high school friends are your friends for life. Like, what are the chances, right? That those are the perfect people for you and your tribe and your personal growth and development. Uh, they're, they they're, they're probably don't even speak your language, to be honest, right? And so it's like, over time, my guess is that every single person will be able to communicate very effectively with everybody else that they want to, right? And, and sell directly is sort of like the next step of that. And so that was the, that was the trend. But even like Gumroad, before Gumroad, there, you know, that was happening too, right? Like people had blogs instead of, I guess, submitting op-eds to like their local newspaper or something, right? Like this is a like, and that's the other thing is I, I think there's this why now thing, question people ask, but I really think it's a slope and it's like, it's like, it should have already been happening and it will continue to happen. Like the creator economy is this big buzzword right now because of COVID and, you know, all these kind of things, but it, but like remote work, for example, has like been happening. You know, Dreamweaver, I mean, I would say Excel is like the premier no code tool, right? And that's been around for decades, right? Uh, it's a thing that's already been happening. It's just continuing to happen and as it continues to happen it just makes it way it makes its way to different people right like the, it's like the william gibson quote the future is here it's just not evenly distributed right so it's like i was already communicating communicating directly with my audience you know on twitter 12 years ago it's a probably pretty good bet that like i'm just early right and there's going to be way more people doing this uh and it's, it sort of goes in line with my philosophy around doing the fun and all these other things but it's like find the thing that you really believe you're early on ios development right for me it was that as well cryptocurrency might be that for, for for you or other people like there's it's so hard and it's just like follow your interests it's like go down the rabbit hole and if you if you sort of discover something and you're like there's something really interesting here and at some point in the next, it could be tomorrow, it could be 30 years from now, it's going to change the world or everyone's going to use this. It's just so obvious to you. Like figure out a way to like invest in that thing, right? Uh, you know, sort of self, start making pickaxes, right? If you find gold, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so what's really interesting is you have this insight, uh, you build kind of the side project that then all of a sudden starts to gain some traction and people start reaching out and saying, hey, do you want to raise money? Do you want to leave? You know, you obviously are watching the metrics. Uh, and at some point you do decide to leave. Now, to clear up one of the, I think, misconceptions, being the second employee at Pinterest does not mean uh, you get to be rich forever if you leave before your stock vest, which is what yeah. you did. And mm -hmm. so Talk me through kind of the transition now. When did you raise money? Kind of what was that conversation like? Um, and, and kind of in 
hindsight view now of having left before the stock vested, like regret, good decision, kind of just talk me through all yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, probably not a good decision, <laughs> uh, financially, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I was just, you know, I, I was not savvy enough, I would say. As a, what I should have done, in hindsight, is I should have been quiet and been like, I'm, this thing is going to work, and I should, you know, it would be nice to have some safety net here. So, like, let me, you know, even though I have this cool idea, you know, and, and, and Pinterest is fine, but not as cool as starting my own company, uh, like, let me just wait for a while, right? But again, if I did that, like, I would hit my one year. And then every month, there's like this, you know, so I don't know, I don't know if, I, if, if that would have been a better decision for me, maybe I could have my presence would have tanked the company and Pinterest wouldn't be anything today. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it was it was just it was just it, I remember talking to Josh Elman about this. He's like, look, you, when I was talking to him about Gumroad and leaving and things, and he was like, look, you can get have a hundred percent of a small thing or 1% of a big thing. Right. And I just like, I'm just like the hundred percent of a small thing kind of person. Like I really want control. I want to decide who I work with, where I work, how I work, what I work on. And just the truth is you can't do that if you're working at a different, at a company, right? Like you just can't, right. Uh, ultimately you're going to have, you're going to be, you're going to be put next to somebody and you're just like, I don't really like this person that much. Right. Uh, and I just, I don't know. I don't think I could ever do that again, honestly. Right. Which is, it, I just, I just think it, it wasn't about the financial thing, but certainly it was stupid. Like I should have been smarter about it. I should have probably negotiated with Pinterest or something, but I just didn't know anything. Right. And, and they didn't either. I think it was like a sort of a new fresh situation for everyone involved and sort of a trial by fire. But certainly I think I could have probably figured out a way to keep, you know, uh, afford them my stock, which I think the math ended up being, it would have been like, you know, 10 to $20 million or something for staying in a, an extra, you know, like six months or three months or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and look, it's also one of these things. I love your perspective on just like, who knows what would have happened, right? There's a million different things that could have been, uh, but you left and um, you said, hey, look, I'm going to go take a run at this. And you probably more so than anyone else I know of uh, have had the ups and downs of kind of the entrepreneur's journey. Um, and so let's start with kind of the initial up, which was, you walk out of Pinterest with Gumroad, uh, you raise some money, kind of what are in investors investing in? Who do you go talk to? Why take Kleiner's money? You know, kind of what was that all like as you kind of started the company? Yeah, I mean, so I, I had a few investors who pinged me saying, hey, you know, if you do a company, let me know. Uh, you know, a bunch of investors who followed me on Twitter. So when I said I was leaving Pinterest, I got a bunch of email from that too. And so I just started meeting with people and this is like the old school, I mean, especially with COVID, like the way you fundraise today is a little different, but back then, right, it was all kind of Sand Hill Road, kind of Silicon Valley people. And so I would just meet with a batch of people, right? Like the first set of people would reach out to me. I'd have like a little, like, I don't think I had a deck or anything. I just had like uh, the website. I would just go to government.com on my laptop and just talk to them about it. And it certainly helps being like employee number two at Pinterest and, and, and being a technical, you know, developer, et cetera. Um, but I would just talk and be like, look, I'm building this. I'm really interested in this sort of democratization of commerce, starting with like the lemonade stand to the, to the Shopify. Like, what does that look like? Uh, and I ended up, yeah. And so I would meet with all these people and then they basically, you know, a few of them would say, I'm in, like, let me know. By the way, you should talk to my friend. Right. And so that's, you kind of, 
there's this tree that kind of builds pretty quickly that you kind of meet with, you know, a bunch of people, 100, 200 people or something, in, you know, in a few months that are, that are interested in investing in you. Uh, and I ended up raising a million bucks uh, from, you know, Nabal, Max Lepchin, Lowercase, Collaborative Fund, First Round, Excel, SB Angel, Seth Goldstein from Turntable, and, and uh, maybe a couple other folks. But uh, a good list, pretty, pretty solid list, uh, around a million bucks. And then and Kleiner happened pretty soon after. I sort of started, I moved up to the city, got an office, started building stuff, and I don't really know what happened. I mean, I think I think there was, you know, like there, there's only one Series A that a company can raise, right? And I think there's there, so there are like eight to ten firms that are kind of tracking all these kind of pre-seed seed funded companies. And I think I must have just been like one of those companies that you know was super hot, came out of the gates, and at least two firms were like, you know, if you want more money, we will like do your Series A and sort of preempt, you know, you doing it a year from now. Right. And so I sort of just had two meetings, one with index, one with the Kleiner, got two term sheets and ended up picking, picking, picking Kleiner. But the, the, the reason was, and I talked to like all my investors, like, what should I, what should I do here? And Josh Koppelman from first round, he said, he has this great quote. He says, there's nothing like numbers to have up a good story, which is to say you're hot right now. Like you can kind of raise on the story that you're telling and you're convincing but the minute you have a year or so worth of data that maybe shows there's some holes in your story, which might be true, might not be true, you might not be able to raise as easily. You might, you know, so you're, you're, you're these people are paying up right now and they might pay up even more, but they also might see the data and be like, oh, there's nothing here, right? The emperor has no clothes. And, and, uh, and so I was like, yeah, I, you know, it was a seven on $28 million round. So it was like a pretty good round for a series A at the time. And then I wouldn't have to think about money for years, right? Like I could just focus on building the team, on, you know, talking to customers, doing that whole thing for two, three, four years before I really had to kind of like think about raising money again and all these things. And so that was the big reason I did it was like, I could just sort of do it. I had just raised the seed around. I was like, I can just raise all of this money collectively. And then I can just like go build stuff for years and really figure this thing out and not have to context switch right into this fundraising cycle, which in hindsight, I think had some, had some downsides to doing that too. Uh, but I, but it, you know, it just, it was just so the, the idea that I could just work on something uh, for years and not have to sort of, you know, talk to anybody else and just focus on building was just so appealing to me. Uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of what I ended up doing. And so when you take venture money, Obviously, they want venture growth. They want venture exits and kind of slam on the gas is, uh, is a very kind of crude way to explain what they expect you to do with that money. Um, as we fast forward in your story, uh, you end up buying Kleiner out for a dollar at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so uh, people who heard, just heard you say you raised $7 million shortly after raising a million dollars, kind of a who's who of Silicon Valley. And then you're buying Kleiner out for a dollar. What happens in between? raising yeah. money from them to, to, to that moment. Yeah. I mean, we grew for, you know, we did okay. Like, I think we, as you mentioned, it's like, yeah, VCs, they kind of think of it like you, you know, like, like jet fuel, right? Like just make sure your point is in the right direction uh, before you, before you use it. Uh, and yeah, we did okay. Like we, we, you know, we grew to a nice, like probably one and a half to 2 million annual revenue 
business or growing maybe like 60, 80% a year at that point, just not fast enough for VCs to say, hey, this is worth like a series B of like 10, 15 million dollars, right? At like a whatever, 100 million or 60 million dollar valuation or something like that. Just what, we weren't there. Uh, and I did the rounds, like I met with all the investors and uh, like all of them, because that's what you have to do when the when the top ones say no, and you kind of just start going down the list. And it's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was good for me though, right? Because I feel like I had the easy way the first time, the first couple of times. So it was nice to kind of not have that and learn all learn about that obviously not nice entirely but but uh yeah we did that Kleiner gave us a a a bridge of two million bucks while when we realized it was going to be hard to raise more money to really sort of double down on on sort of growth uh and not have to do layoffs then which would have been kind of like a death meal for the company and so they gave us a two million dollar bridge at a 4x liquidation preference so at that point we had 16 and a half million dollars in preferences and it was like a kind of a Hail Mary, right? Like we're going to try to make this thing work and hopefully we can like find something that just like accelerates the business. But we spent nine months, you know, January of 2015 to October ish, September, October ish, trying to, trying to find that. And we didn't, uh, it turns out if you didn't find it three years into that, you're probably not going to find it in the next year. Uh, something like COVID kind of has to happen for that to change, uh, which you can't control. Right. Uh, but yeah, so we did this round of layoffs. We went from 20 employees down to five employees and got to profitable because that was like the, the number one thing I wanted to do is like, look, we're paying like two, two and a half million dollars a month to our creators, right? Like we might not be like a crazy successful VC business, but like we're still meaningful for these people. And so like we need to get to profitable because I can't just turn off the faucet for them. And so we did that with five people, got to profitable, got rid of the San Francisco office in 2016. And, and then I left, I, I ended up moving to Provo, Utah. I, I told my investors, like, I'm burnt out. Like I worked on this thing for, you know, four plus years. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, a million and a half in revenue with basically no team, like a skeleton crew growing 15%, 20% a year. And with 16 and a half million dollars in preferences, right? Like there's like, for years and years and years, there's no exit, right? Like there's nothing. If I sold the company for 16 and a half, for folks that don't know what that means, basically it means if I sell the company for 16 and a half, they get 16 and a half and I get zero, which is the deal. That's, I'm not complaining. That's just the, the, what, we had, we, we, what we got into. But it basically means like a 16, uh, a $1.5 million annual current revenue business growing at that rate is not worth that and will not be worth that for a long time. And so I said, look, like I tried... I'm going to put this thing on autopilot. I'm going to try out the, the four hour work week and then, you know, write and paint and kind of explore my life and just kind of take a sabbatical, you know, have a quarter life crisis, uh, et cetera. So I ended up moving to Provo, Utah. I did that for, you know, over two years. So I left in, 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 uh, yeah, I guess that was late 2015, early 2016. And then, uh, I think it was late 2017. Uh, so two or three, or maybe 2018, I can't remember exactly, but Kleiner anyways, they emailed me saying, Hey, you know, I had a couple, I had, I had some conversations. I was like, I'm going to open source this whole thing because like, I, I want the, we're never going to build this great business, but like, you know, the world can benefit from all this technology that we've done. Uh, and they were like, well, you know, if you do that, it kind of as a way to say, look, there's nothing here. Like, let's just clean up the books. And like, this is like going to be some free software for people. Uh, and they were like, you know, like that's still worth something. Like we still kind of, you know, kind of have the IP ownership of that. And like, 
Um, but then randomly kind of like three months or so later, they were just like, Hey, you know, we, we're, we're, you know, would you be willing to sort of write up, you know, we'd be willing to write off the investment effectively sell you all our shares back for a dollar. And I still don't know why necessarily. Like I don't, they have, they didn't give me a reason, right? They weren't like, this is why we're doing it. So I don't know if it's like some internal thing or some like tax write off thing or whatever. Um, but I think it was probably just like, you know, just like, like sort of Mary Kondo style, like cleaning up sort of anything that that could be cleaned up, you know, right before a tax year or something like that. But yeah, basically they, they wrote it off. And then since then, government has sort of shifted a little bit. Um, but, but, but I think that the sort of some of the context that gets missed here is like a lot of people are like, haha, Kleiner, like they lost, you know, they basically wrote off this investment that might now be doing well because government is in this different place. But the truth is like, I think government would not be in this place without that having happened, right? Like they had kind of suffocated the company in, in a sense, because we'd raised all this capital and I couldn't work on it. It just didn't make sense for me to work on it. And when that went away and down to $2 million in preferences or so, I was like, oh, like this is now interesting. I, can I started hiring a team, started shipping again. We went from 15% year over year to 25% to 40% to now over 100% uh, year over year. So, but that wouldn't have happened, right? That wouldn't have happened if, if Kleiner and you know, I had, you know, that sort of like level of, of preferences that like would have made it untenable for me to really work on it. So it's kind of this weird Schrodinger's cat kind of thing, right? Like that you don't really know, um, you know, what's, what's going to happen uh, in, or the Heisenberg sort of uncertainty principle, right? Like you kind of mess around with the experiment. Uh, you never know like the sort of the, the position and, and speed or whatever, whatever kind of metaphor. Yeah. So before we kind of start analyzing some of this, just where is Gumroad today? Like what, what metrics or, or kind of numbers, how do you talk about where the business is today and how it's doing? Yeah. So what I say is we're processing around $150 million a year for creators, uh, which is, you know, smaller than Patreon and teachable and larger than Substack and everything else. Basically, obviously we're a lot older too. Um, we're at around $10 million in, in ARR. We're doubling year over year, uh, largely due to COVID. And I think we would have been maybe 60 or 70% without COVID. Now we're at over 100% with COVID. Um, and we just, you know, we're just focused. We have a tiny team. It's like 10, 15 people. And we just, you know, we're just going to build. We're just going to keep building stuff and, you know, shipping software and making it better and better and better. And we're kind of on the, the, the faster horse kind of thing, right? Like, Steve Jobs has the, the quote. I'm like, look, like we're happy building the fast. Like the, the car could only have been invented by one person one time, right? And uh, we're happy with the, with the faster horse. Creators, our creators are very happy with just, you know, focusing on the problem and, and making it better and better and better and not trying to kind of go too big or try to, you know, bite off too much or, or what have you. Yeah. And so what it feels like is today you're running a business that um, you still have got some preference, right, in the capital stack. Uh, you still have some of those early investors that, that still have exposure to the equity. But where you kind of ended up is as if you didn't raise venture capital, right? And kind of that's the, the, the business that you're building today, which is you're using cash flow to grow and, and kind of do that. And so you've seen both sides, right? You've seen kind of the benefits of that and you've also seen um, the benefits and challenges of raising venture. Uh, you talk all the time about, should people raise money, should they not? Kind of what's the high level of how you break down? Like, when do you raise venture and when does it maybe not make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think you raise venture if there's something you wanna do that you just don't have sort of the profit to, uh, sort of stream to do so, right? If you're like, I need to solve this problem 
and I want to solve it now and I need some money to go solve that problem. And I'm willing to sell, like people always talk about it, like, oh, you raised this much money, right? That's the term people use, but you're selling a part of your company, right? Like that's a big deal. You can't, you can't unsell that very easily. And so I, I, I would say the way to think about it is like, is this worth 10% of your company, right? Like that's more expensive than a loan. That's more expensive than, than debt. That's more expensive, expensive than almost anything, right? A piece of your company. And so, yeah, just, you know, kind of just make sure that you, yeah, like this is the thing that you want to do and it's worth selling, you know, for average sort of round is around 20% of your company, right? And so you're selling, you're getting a million bucks. You're also selling 20% of your company for it. And you just have to do the math. Is it worth it? Can you build this, you know, without, uh, without that, you know, maybe you should. I think I always, you know, I, I, I always try to ride the line between VC is bad and VC is good. Cause I think both of those are, are simplifications. And I think most people kind of understand that, but especially people in the industry, I think they do. Uh, there's no one who will tell you to not raise money faster than a VC, I feel like, but they get this rap, I think, because they, they kind of like push the companies in a certain direction. There's sort of this one size fits all model, but that's, you know, that's just what it is, right? That's it's just like understanding like, yeah, this is what VCs are going to want from you because this is their business model. And just like understanding uh, the incentives that they have is just, you know, a good thing to do. And not just the VCs, by the way, right? But early employees and executives and everybody you work with is trained around a certain incentive model around their, their, they get a bunch of stock and then that stock appreciates in value. And then at some point they liquidate that stock, which is a very different model from you work at this company and you get a profit share, right? It's a fundamentally different, different kind of business. And Gumroad kind of got lucky because we basically went down to zero. And so when I rebuilt the company with new folks and everything, I could say, look, this is not that kind of company anymore, right? So don't join if you're looking for that because the, we have the numbers to F up a good story now and we don't have that. Right. Uh, and it's been freeing, right? It's great. Like I can, like employees aren't sort of obsessed about, are we going to run out of money? Like, are we going to need to raise, you know, like what should we work on? Like we should work on the thing that drives the most volume tomorrow because that's, what's going to, you know, it's, that's what matters. And it's now just like, let's just build a great product. Right. Everyone gets paid. Everyone, you know, does the work and, you know, it's, it's a very low stress kind of environment, but you lose things too, right? Like you lose some of the, the impact, the urgency, the sort of, when you're fighting a war, you know, like there's, there's, there's some good things that come out of that too. And I, I have empathy for that as well. Um, I just think it's like, yeah, if you, if, like, if you have plenty of money and customers are paying you plenty of money, you might not have to raise, or you might be able to raise, you know, like one password did, right? Like a lot of money at a very low dilution and sell a lot of secondaries to do it. And I think it's just, it's just about optionality. I think the biggest thing you lose, you do lose when you raise VC is it, is, is you're opting for the liquidity model. You're, you're stating to everybody, the way that we end up making money here is we sell the business for, you know, a 10 or hundred X on where we're at today. And that's it. That's the way that we're going to make 99% of the capital, you know, that that this sort of return on investment, that's when it kicks in. And so that is either an IPO or an M&A deal, right? That's about it. Uh, those are the only two ways you're going to get liquidity on your, on your, on your stock in like a meaningful way. And so just know that, right? Just know that that's the, the and there's nothing wrong. Gumroad might still IPO one day, right? But, you know, but, but yeah, I just think a lot of people get into it. And they, they go through YC, they raise a couple of million bucks, and then they're like, oh, I didn't know that this is what that meant. Like, I actually have to 
you go for this kind of home run strategy, right? Otherwise it's, it's, it's not, it's not meaningful. One of the things I've always thought would be really interesting is if people talked about fundraising uh, in reverse chronological order, right? Which is normally they talk about it as, oh, I'm going to raise this money, then I'm going to do X, then I'm going to raise this money, then I'm going to do Y, whatever. What you're really talking about is like, why don't you start from the finish line and then work your, your way backwards, right? Like if I told you, you could have a business that throws off $20 million in cash and you and your employees put it in your pocket at the end of each year, like, would you be interested in running that business? Or would you be interested in running a business where basically you have one big payday when it goes public? By the way, both are fine, right? Neither one is yeah. right or wrong. It, it's just the, the finish line of what makes you comfortable or not comfortable ends up actually dictating what you do on the fundraising side much, much more than, you know, Hey, uh, I need the money today because if not, then I can't hire this employee. Yeah, right? it, it seems like a great tweet, right? He says like the only thing that sort of level of what a measure of intelligence is: did you get what you want out of life or whatever, right? Which is just to say, like, look, like if you want, you know, to run like a hundred thousand dollar a year business that just turns cash, and you're ha you 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 want to go live in Thailand, and that's all you want to do, and that's sort of like the sort of the Tim Ferrissy kind of for our work week kind of thing. Like, that's great. Just make sure that you sort of are thinking about that and planning, you know, that kind of future, right? And if you want the sort of crazy kind of like, you know, double or nothing sort of model, and then maybe you get a bunch of money, you know, 10 years from now, but that's the only way you're going to do it. You're never going to be able to get to that scale or that level of impact or whatever, but you're also almost definitely not going to get there anyways. Like, uh, just, yeah, just know, kind of know. And I, I think the thing that a lot of people miss, like some of the anti-VC crowd, I think when they look at my journey, they're like, oh, look at this person. He got, you know, used or like he, he was like, you know, manipulated or, and I, like, I do think like one, I have loved every moment of my life, right? Like I'm, I've never been in a place where I feel like, oh, I don't want to be here right now. Like I signed up for everything. I knew kind of what I was getting into. And every single time, like I learned, I met people, I built my skill set, my credibility. So it's, it's like, I don't, you know, I don't regret it, right? Like, I, I'm very grateful for everything that I went through. Sure, I wish I maybe had some more nuance around around the edges, but uh, it's, yeah, it's way better than I think just being, you know, at a company that I don't enjoy working at, which is sort of a, an experience that way more people have, right, uh, on a daily basis, uh, especially right now. That um, you wrote this blog post about uh, not building a billion dollar business and not kind of being able to use venture capital to build a venture scale business. Uh, the post goes viral, and now you know you pretty much got a venture scale business, right? Yeah. You're growing 100% year over year, 10 million dollars in ARR. Like it kind of looks like almost what a, a early stage investor was expecting or hoping that you would do. His question is, did the blog post contribute to you becoming a venture scale business? But maybe talk a little bit about the blog post and kind of, you know, what transpired after you wrote that and it went viral. Yeah. So I wrote this blog post really to sum up the last nine years of my life. Like it was kind of a capstone for me. I wanted to, I was just having conversations with people and, you know, people that I thought had kind of known what had gone down. And I realized even people like my mom, like had no context on what had actually transpired. Like it just happened. I kind of disappeared, you know, and everyone kind of let me be. And, and so people thought I'd sold the business. People thought it was dead. Like everyone had their own kind of telephone game kind of going on. And so I was like, I'm just going to write this piece, kind of show it to everybody. Everyone can kind of know what happened, right? I can say that I don't have any picture stock and like I can just clarify all of these things. And so I did that. And then, yeah, it just kind of went, 
went sort of super viral, 800,000 people read it. Uh, I gained a bunch of Twitter followers from that, which kind of like started this like new sort of Twitter thing for me. Uh, but I think the, 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 bi the biggest thing I think that people appreciated was like, there's just, it was just the nuance of it, right? It was like, it wasn't like, I wasn't trying to sell anything. I wasn't trying to convince anyone that, you know, that like I was on the right path or the wrong path or like VC was good or VC was bad. People might've taken that message, but you know, it was just like, look, this is the story, right? Like I'm just going to go through what happened and, you know, take it or leave it. Right. Uh, and there were a couple lines in there that I think really resonated with people. But I think the biggest one was just that there is like some level of uncertainty here. Right. And like you just need to be comfortable with building, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. Right. You can't predict like if this is going to be a billion dollar thing, a hundred million dollar thing, a ten billion dollar thing. Like no one really knows. Like you should just really focus on building something you think is interesting and valuable for people that sort of gives you the lifestyle that you want. and and then just be happy where you are, right? Like, just be happy where you are. And then if it happens, like if these other things happen, like, great, you know, but it's, they're probably not going to change your life drastically, right? If you're, if you're already pretty content with what you, what you have, which is kind of the, the model that I've been trying to live my life since, which is to try not to do, to set goals and do too much. And just, you know, even now with Gumroad, right? Like I get VCs that are like, Hey, Gumroad, like, have you thought about raising money for this thing? Uh, a lot of that's just BS. Like they haven't done their research. They don't really know like the history of the company, but even, you know, friends of mine at, at, at top tier firms are like, Hey, you know, but you know, have you thought about this? And I'm like, look, we're profitable. We, we make money. Like money is not the bottleneck for us right now. And I know the creator economy is super hot. I know these things are happening, but we still don't know how this thing's going to play out. Right. And if, you know, I'm just not willing to, like, it's, it's a very different deal for a VC, right? A VC sees, a VC gets IRR, right? So, like, they're, 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 their investment begins today, right? So, like, they actually love the fact that Gumroad had this nine-year journey because, like, they're just paying for now going forward, right? They're not paying, you know, like, if they, if they did this deal and then had to wait nine years, their, their sort of annual return would be destroyed, right? Um, so now they see it as a great investment, but like for me, I'm like, I finally got here, you know, like I, the, they, the, what I tell friends, I'm like, look, I like spent nine years building this business. I finally have scale and freedom. Like I'm going to spend a couple of years just building the stuff that I want to build for the people I want to build for with this, you know, a little bit more of like a vessel for me to kind of explore those kind of things. And then I can say, you know, let's go big, right? Let's, let's, let's find a new CEO who wants to go big. Like, I don't know what that looks like. Um, it probably doesn't look, I've thought about doing a reggae plus, like doing sort of a crowdfunding kind of fundraiser around it from our creators and, and the community. That might be really interesting. Uh, I just think they're, they're I, I think of Gummer like an experiment. I think that the thing that I can do that very few other people can do is because of my weird journey to where I am today, I have this kind of weird, neat place where I can basically do whatever I want. I can run all these weird experiments within the, within the company. I can like try out these sort of different processes and software tools and ways of working in a way that just most companies are either, they either can do that, but they don't have any scale or they have scale and therefore they can't do that. Right. And I'm in this weird, Gumbers in this weird spot where I, so I'm, I, I feel like it's almost like my duty to kind of just experiment a little bit and like kind of just push the envelope in ways that are probably bad, right. They're probably not going to lead to change. So there's sort of like the Lindy kind of effect there. 
right? But but like I think it's worth it. It's worth like sort of pushing the Overton window a little bit. Like, what if we don't need meetings? What if we don't need this? What if we do need this other thing? What if we open source all this stuff that no one does? You know, and I, I just think that I, I can add a lot more value to the world on these experimental kind of side effects of running Gumroad almost than like Gumroad itself. And I think that's like a really interesting kind of place to, place to be. One of the things that people seem to be very fascinated about, and I think it, because it is so different, is you've chosen to operate the business, the metrics that you share, the information that you put out there. It's just so transparent. Where does that come from? It comes from, I don't know. I mean, I, I think one misconception is that I think people think I just started doing it right after the blog post or like I, I sort of like adopted this new style. And I was thinking about these other folks who've done it, like Justin does it really well, Justin Kahn, Naval, Balaji, and I, and, and me, I guess. And, and, and I realized that like, they've been doing it for a long time. Like you can go back, to, I mean, Justin Kahn, I mean, he literally had a camera taped to his head for 24 hours a day, right? <laughs> so like, it's not new. It's not like, oh, Twitter, like we wanna do this thing now because we want a bunch of followers. It's like, this is just what we do. Like we, we like Naval has been writing, like I started reading in like 20, 2005, seven, something like that. You know, uh, I just think there's the, I think you're probably similar, I might, is my guess. Like there's just a personality type that is like wanting to share all the time. And it's not really about the sort of strategic value of doing it or not doing it. It's just like, I need to do it. Like I need to tell people because that's how I learn. That's how I get feedback. That's how I feel good about what I'm doing. And I can I like, and it's just like a feedback mechanism. It's like, why would I, like I can do a fund and I'm gonna to have to spend all this time reading stuff and like talk to all these people one-on-one -on -one and like make progress. Or I can just tweet, hey, I have a fun. No one does that. Like, I'm it's not even close. I'm just gonna talk about it. Uh, and, and then 100 people, 200 people can be like, hey, what have you thought about this? What about this? You should talk to this. Like, to me, like that, it's about liquidity, right? It's when you get rid of some of this opaqueness. It's like why all the startups switch like glass walls in their conference rooms, right? It's just like when you create that, sort of that openness, you can sort of create more of these serendipitous connections, right? Because you can now see a lot of it. It's just exposed. Uh, it's like, oh, I didn't even know that you were next to me this whole time and, you know, we could work together on this thing or whatever. And so I've always just been like a, like a core believer in that philosophy of like, and maybe that's because I grew up in Singapore and there was no tech real scene there. And even when I got to USC, it was minimal. So I was always trying to like find my people online, you know, on Hacker News and Twitter and forums and things like that. Uh, but I just, I do think there's some sort of like fundamental personality trait that I don't know what it is. Like, I don't consider myself an extrovert, but there's this kind of like weird, interesting version of an introvert or something that like just wants to make me like, I started painting. I'm like, I'm going to create an Instagram account and start posting my paintings. Cause that's like, I want to have a journal and I want people to see my improvement and again, give me feedback. And like, it's been so great. And I think all these people, they wait until they're really good before they start doing that kind of stuff. Right. Um, there's like, and I'm just like, why? Like, there's nothing to learn from someone who's really good, to be honest. Like, what are you going to learn from like Jason Calacanis at this point? Right? Like, there's just, he's off, like, you forget what you, what you didn't know. Right? Like, you just don't, I can't, like, even when people ask me about fundraising, I'm like, look, I can tell you all I know about fundraising circa 2010, 2011, 2012. But like, I precedes didn't exist back then. Right? Like, there's a new sort of, sort of like, you should actually just talk to someone who raised money yesterday. Like that would be a much better person to talk to about fundraising. I'm happy to connect with them. 
And so I, I think there is this idea that like, I don't know, like there, there's this like strategy behind it, but it's really just like, I'm just doing what I do and it feels right to me. And it, you know, just like I got into iOS development because it felt right, not because I thought it was gonna change like everything. And, and, and it's that sensibility that I think is what's really important because I think you have to find that for, for everybody, right? Everybody has to find that thing that is kind of like driving them into an interesting place. Because I just, I believe there are millions of those places, right? And I think you can make plenty of money in all of those places and you'll certainly be happier. I, I think there's this worry I have that people kind of see some, someone's success pattern and then they say, oh, that's the, that's the way that I need to become successful. But the truth is, if you're starting out today, the, the way that you become successful is going to look very different, right? Because the platforms, the growth, the macro trends are different, right? Like the, and I can't tell you what those are. Like you have to be a kid who's like in the middle of nowhere messing around with like AR stuff or like, you know, audio social networks or whatever and be like, oh, this is a really interesting idea. And then spend, you know, a few years and then it's like all of a sudden the whole world is like paying attention. Right. And, and I think John Collison says, just, you, you know, you have to be willing to go down the rabbit hole and you just have to, because if truly, if you want to be on the frontier, which is what you kind of need to be at, if you're building something interesting, sort of by definition, right? Like there's not going to be a lot of people there. Like, no one's there to come back and tell you, by the way, this is the path, right? You have to kind of be the one going into the forest and like finding the weird thing. And you don't know when you're going to find it. Right. That's the kind of the other thing. It's kind of stochastic. Like you don't know, like, oh, on the other side of this is like the number zero or gravity or like, it, you know, or the sort of the evolution, right? Like, it's just like, no, you just got to do it because it's interesting and weird and like, it just, it's fun and it's satisfying to you. And then you might discover something like, like the United States of America, right? Like that wasn't their goal. They weren't trying to do this thing. They were just trying to solve a problem that they had. And then, it, whoa, holy crap. It turns out that this was like a massive, you know, massively sort of important evolution in human history to get to this sort of like liberal democracy but you couldn't have planned for that right you couldn't have had a business plan that's like our goal is to create america and we're this is the way we're going to do it it was like this very trial and error thing uh and and that's sort of just what i think sort of innovation and invention kind of need that it's just like this sort of constant sort of trying to solve our own problems and we solve our problems and those lead to like an interesting life a new different life that has other problems that need solving and then you solve those and then you have other problems that need solving and then you solve those and, and like and I, I assume that the, like human history like I, I i really believe going back to that whole early thing i think that's a fundamental sort of belief that i have is that we're super early right like i think humans if we make it for an extra thousand two thousand ten thousand hundred thousand years like i can't imagine what that world looks like but i assume it's going to be insane right in a way that i can't comprehend just like a phone if you showed a phone or a gun or something to someone you know a couple hundred years ago i mean not a gun but you know what i mean like it would be they would just they wouldn't know what to do they'd be like this is magic like we're gonna burn you at the stake right like well forget even a couple hundred years ago i mean literally there's videos of people who went to jail in the 1980s or 1990s come out and they look at an iphone like that right so he's, yeah. he's, Forget hundreds yeah. of years, we're literally talking two, three decades, right? So yeah, I'm uh, still blown away, dude. Like, I just got a magic keyboard for my iPad, and I'm like, this is insane. Like, this is the trackpad. It's like, it's, it's mind-boggling. Like, we're so, and that's why I'm excited to be an investor, but I'm just excited to be alive, because I just think there's just so much more. I think there's this, we always talk about the black swan, 
right? Like these events like COVID and these other things that kind of like tank sort of like the tail risk, right? But I just think we, we also, we don't spend enough time thinking about like, what does the upside look like? Like what are the, what are the white swans, right? Like what are like the crazy things that we're gonna discover? And it's like, oh, that problem that we thought we had to solve, we're, we solved it, right? Like that, like penicillin, right? Or the transistor or plastic. Like there are a lot of these things that like, like Stripe has totally changed the game for sort of startups getting, you know, getting online. And, and that didn't exist, you know, 15 years ago, right? And so like, what what is that next thing? And what is that gonna enable us to do? And even things like climate change, like I'm, I'm obviously like, it's a thing we should, we should work on and it's not gonna get solved unless we work on it. But I'm also incredibly hopeful that we will solve it. Like, I just believe that sort of fundamentally, uh, maybe that's not good, but like, I just really believe that we just don't know that, that sort of what's on the other side, right? Like, what are we gonna invent? What are we gonna discover? What two things are we gonna put together that, very quickly will seem obvious and, and become universal. And it's like, can you believe that like back then we had a problem? Like back then people just used to, this is how toilets worked not that long ago. And now like, you know, we don't even think about it or, or, or food production. Like there's just so much, uh, there's so much, I think there's so much to be, to be discovered. Even like I, I had this moment very recently when I saw the, the, what is that? Like the starship or something, right? Like the, and I was just like, this is insane. Like this thing is like, and I, I could like visualize in a little bit of a future where we're just going to Mars and back or moon and back like over and over again, like an elevator effectively. And then you realize like, that's all it is. Like it's an incredibly, it's rocket science is actually incredibly simple, which is you just take like a heavy thing and then you just like have to move it like into space with a lot of, it, it takes a lot of work, right? So you, it's not easy obviously, but like it's a kind of a simple physics problem where you just have to take this thing and like, if you could, you would just, you know, you just have to move it there. Like you're just trying to get this thing to point it from point A to point B. And then when I saw it, I was like, Oh yeah, that's all it is. It's just like a lot of fire, <laughs> like, you know, a lot of explosions effectively. Uh, and I could just like, and I'm like, Oh, there's the, there's, this is the future or, or like the future. This has hints of the future. It's like when you see a painting and you're like, you're sort of, the, you're inspired, right? You're like, there's something, we're, we're like unlocking something like we're about to we're soon we're going to know why this is interesting we just know that it is interesting we haven't figured it out yet you know so you've obviously spent the last nine ten years uh building gumroad um you've made a couple of angel investments along the way but now we're going to dive kind of deeper into investing uh, one, maybe talk a little bit just about some of those angel investments you made, how they went, and then why focus on um, actually putting together a fund and, and going and kind of being more uh, organized and serious about the investing activities. Yeah. So I did just a little bit of angel investing previously, especially before Gumroad. I did five deals before Gumroad when I was at Pinterest. And that was really for me to build like a mental model of the industry, right? I was like, okay, I'm a founder. I'm an early employee. I was an early employee. I want to be a founder at some point. One great way to learn about this model is to basically take the money I didn't give USC and invest it into startups. <laughs> so I did. I invested in five companies uh, in 2011. Uh, two of them did quite well. Hello Sign ended up selling to Dropbox for 230 million, and one Movable Inc. is going to do something pretty well uh, as well. And so I had a, just like from five, I'd had two good two good hits. And so that was like, okay, I have some sensibility, some taste maybe here. Uh, 
And then I did my sixth deal was Lambda School. I did 2017 their seed round. That's also looks like it might be good. We'll see. Again, like you don't really know, right? It's it could be massive. It could go to zero. Uh, but that was an interesting bet. Um, and then in 2019 and 2020, I did a bunch more, like 10 or 15. But it's it's been too early to really say what's going to work. But I did Figma, Clubhouse, House, uh, the Aperitif brand, uh, Circle, this new uh, creator community thing um squad like but just a bunch of small smaller small ones uh that are just so early to, to really know if they're going to work or not um but i had some sort of like some track record and like I, some interest in really learning about about this this kind of space because it's it's fundamentally important like if you're interested in startups like a lot of the startups do raise capital they do raise money from vcs and angels and 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 there aren't that many people who are those people and so like it, you can be a meaningful part of like business creation engine, uh, you know, if you participate in that. And so that's kind of how I thought about it. And then I did after the George Floyd stuff, I, 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 there was that meme going around about hire, hire wire. And I was like, I can do these, I can hire people. And I did, and, and we'll continue to do so. And I can also write checks. And so I just tweeted out, this is the power of Twitter. Uh, you know, I just tweeted out, Hey, I've done some of these investments. I'm looking for more. I'd love to invest in black founders. And I did four deals from that and two others since indirectly. Um, and basically I just run out of, ran out of money. Like I can't, I don't have, again, I don't have picture stock. I don't, I'm not, uh, you know, I still pay myself like a salary. I haven't sort of exited any liquidity on the government stock side. So it's not like I have a ton of money. Um, but you know, I did a few deals and I, and some of them were looking for more money. So I emailed a few friends, including the ball. I was like, Hey, I did a couple deals you know, you want to co-invest in these, they're looking for more, more money. And he, he effectively just says, you know, like, I'd love to just give you money and then you can just choose where you want to invest it. And I'll pay you to do that and help you sort of advise you on that. Uh, so like, let me know if you're interested. Like we have this new product at AngelList called Rolling Funds, sort of like lowers the barrier of entry as a, as a fund manager. You can sort of try it out, ping a few friends, I'll anchor you. You know, you can start at like $100,000 a quarter, do a couple deals a quarter, and then, you know, see how it goes. And you can use Twitter, you can do whatever you want, because it's kind of this new model um, that's a little different than, than how it's been done in the past. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I'm not going to be a full-time VC. I don't want to deal with any of that stuff, and I don't have the time. I don't want to go on like this road show for months, uh, or Zoom show now, and uh, but I can, you know, I can send some emails and, and these things, right? So I, so I talked to AngelList, set up like a little rolling fund and, uh, put together a brief memo on Notion that just sort of like my track record, who I am, like what I'm interested in, uh, my little fund strategy and just sent it out to, you know, 50 to hundred people, did a webinar about it, uh, a couple tweets. And now I have over a million dollars a quarter committed. So it'll be, it's a sizable, it's a sizable fund. It'll be a $4 million a year fund or something like that, which, you know, if you have a, a normal fund with all these different things, that's sort of the equivalent of like a 12 million, $20 million fund, depending on how much you allocate for follow-ons and X, Y, Z. Walk us through the math. Um, I know you've done the math in terms of like how that works, but walk yeah. us through like if you raised a $40 million fund previously, like we were talking earlier, um, yeah. walk through the math of how that works. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of mind blown because even though I'd raised money from VCs and things and been an angel, like I never really knew what, what are the economics of a VC, right? And so I, yeah, I was like $40 million fund. That is 
you know, first of all, you're not investing the 40 million. You take a, typically take a 2% management fee over 10 years. So that's 20% gone. So you're really investing $32 million. Uh, then typically half of that or two thirds of that is often reserved for follow on capital for this sort of the first rounds of these companies, their second and third, et cetera, rounds. Uh, typically it's pretty common at one to one, to one or one to two ratio. So let's be conservative. So let's say one to one. So that's half the capital. So 16 million is going into early stage first rounds of these companies. And then that's over many years often, right? So that might be over three years typically, right? Three to five years or something like that for a fund of that size. Um, so really that $16 million is split over three years. It's around $5 million a year, right? So this $40 million fund that I see this big announcement, I'm like, wow, I would never do that. That's insanely massive. And like, it's They're probably so wealthy and making all this money and they can do all these deals, you know? And I'm like, wait, that's like, like five and a half million bucks, 5.333 million a year into new companies. Like that's, that's, that's a very different, like five to 50, 40, that's a huge difference. Right. And so I just started doing the math and I was like, wow, like I can, with the rolling fund, which like dramatically makes it easier for me to, to do this. And, and because of Twitter and the sort of, the sort of direct to, to sort of invest LP kind of relationship I can have with everybody, uh, because that's kind of my shtick. Like I can raise a fund that's, you know, probably on the size of a lot of these early stage funds, but it's part-time for me. I can, and I don't have any overhead, right? hundred percent of my management fee, I'm just putting back into the company, into the fund is LP capital. So, you know, of the 4.4 or whatever I'm at now per year, like, you know, basically besides AngelList's fees, that's all going to go to companies. Uh, so over $4 million will go straight to the companies. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's it, right? You know, like it just keeps the model incredibly simple. You don't have to do any math on like, any costs to the, to the fund in terms of like dinners or employees or associates or an office space or any of that stuff. Like I don't need any of that, right? Like all I need is um, some money goes into an AngelList bank account and then I talk to companies and say, hey, can I give you money? And then if they say yes, I just, you know, do a CC and then they, the, the deal gets done. And I think that is gonna be really interesting over the next few years, like kind of being early that same idea i just i just like as i when i discovered this and i talked to naval about it i was like i was like this is really interesting and like i totally imagine in five years there are going to be hundreds of these people like what i'm doing now who are having these rolling funds able to collect you know commits on a quarterly basis able to do it publicly raise anytime raise anywhere and you, you know, like, I wonder what that does to like the sort of traditional Sandhill Road. Clearly Sandhill Road's out of commission right now with COVID, right? But like, I wonder if like, this is just the, the end of it, right? Like, why would you, why would you need to? If you can just raise from all these people, you can do it over Zoom. You, no founder wants to raise money, right? Like, even if, if you're, you want to go down the VC route, it's a necessary evil still, right? Uh, and so I just think if you can, if you can get coalitions of these founders, operators, people who actually understand sort of what it is to be a founder or have some domain expertise. Uh, I, I just think that the sort of the career VC, again, like it's a curve. It's not like a binary instance. It's on its way out. It's been on its way out for a long time. You saw this with syndicates. You saw this with super angels. You saw this now with rolling funds. My guess is over time, the sort of traditional partnership model is going to go away. Uh, and you see it in politics, right? Like I think politics is a really interesting analogy because you have Bernie Sanders and Trump who basically can raise directly from people. They don't have, their, their teams are tiny. They have incredibly low overhead. 
they're super scalable and they, they can use it as a, as a marketing thing. Like I don't have to do super PACs. I don't have to have dinners with rich people behind closed doors every two years, which is what VCs do, right? Like that's what VCs have this like two year fundraising kind of process. They talk to all these rich people, you know, that I don't, I still don't know most of their names. Like I kind of, people have been like, Oh, you should, you know, and I'm like, Oh, cool. I didn't even know that there are all these people out here. A lot of them, you know, they're like, they're like family offices. A lot of them are in like China. Like the money is not as, it's not as like sort of like a bunch of tech people giving other tech people money. There's a, there's a, there's a lot more happening uh, that I've sort of started learning about, but you know, a lot of them have access rights. So like, you know, if, if, if some family office writes you a $10 million check into your fund to anchor you, like you're going to have to, you know, give them updates, right? You're going to have to kind of give them some things, have a call with them once a month, which is actually not that dissimilar probably from politics, right? Like there's probably some soft commitment that if you, if you bundle and you get, you know, you give the, you know, the Clinton campaign or the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign or whatever, like a million bucks, they're going to pick up the phone call, right? Uh, and so they're, they're just like interesting to see that kind of play out. So my guess is just like in politics, you're going to see way more AOCs, way more Bernies, way more Trumps, right? Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, like not a statement on that. Just It's just going to happen. Like that's what I believe. And that's the beauty of democracy. And like you're just going to get, demo- you know, people want democracy and they're going to get it right inevitably uh and uh and i think the same thing will happen on the on the on the venture side which by the way i think it, you know this whole conversation about diversity and inclusion like a lot of founders they raise from vcs these vcs raise from lps these lps look very you know there's a there's a path right uh uh you know that sort of that cuts through harvard and stanford and i think if you can have all of these fund managers from all over the place from all different backgrounds and all the levels of domain expertise all having these small funds, you know, like that's just better for everybody. There's like more diverse LPs, more diverse founders, more diverse GPs, more diverse employees. Like I, I, I see this all the time. Like I'm a, you know, a, a dude, I like started a company and like people will, you know, like, like women will be like, you know, it's weird that like this company I worked at, like did this or didn't do that. And I was like, holy crap, I had no idea. I didn't even know that's a thing that women would want or not want or whatever. You know, I just had so little context for it. Uh, like tampons in the bathroom. Like, it's so cool. And I'm like, oh, shit, that's a great idea. <laughs> like, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought of that. Obviously, I was 21 at the time, a little different life experience now. So I know some of these things. But, but uh, I just think it's so much better to just give people money to go solve the problems that they already know about than try to spend all this time, you know, trying to like learn about this thing. It's like, no, I'd just rather give you money and you can go solve it. Right. And I think the same thing with these, with the sort of like the, the venture capital kind of community is like all these all these funds are trying to do all these things, but I really think the answer is just like give people a bunch of money and then like, they'll do it. They'll do a great job. They'll do a better job than you reading 10 books and a bunch of blog posts and then trying to solve the problem. Like that you just don't know. It's not, it's like, like I can talk about Indian culture. I've never lived in India, but like, I just know it because I've, I've learned, I've just grew up in that sort of environment. Right. Uh, And, and just, it doesn't matter how awesome you are. And like, unless you have like a, a master's degree you're just not going to know as much as I do because of all the little things I picked up and it's kind of like that right and so I just believe so much in like a bunch of diverse LPs picking a bunch of diverse GPs and those GPs picking a bunch of diverse founders and those founders building companies that are just better at all of these other things solving all of these different problems and I'm just I'm super excited about because uh, I, I do think it's going to be like a really interesting trend that's going to lead to a lot of interesting 
uh, interesting companies in the next you know five to ten years. One of the most popular questions that these two are kind of related that I got when I asked for uh, questions to uh, to talk to you about was uh, sitting in the investor seat now, how you think about product market fit and evaluating that right as an investor versus an operator. And uh, let's start there and then we can get into there's another question about community building versus product development. But just in the investor seat, how do you think about product market fit, uh, maybe either similarly or differently than you would as an operator? Yeah, I mean, I really think about product market fit. There's, so there's two types of, there's sort of two distinct businesses people typically build. There's like B2B businesses and B2C businesses, right? Uh, and I think, like, I have much more context on the B2C side, even though Gumroad is kind of a B2B-ish company. The creator economy kind of is a little bit murky in the middle. But the way I think about it is, do people use this? That's sort of number one. And then do these people share it with other people, right? Um, B2B, B2B, it's even simpler. It's like, do these people pay for your service? <laughs> uh, and it's surprising to me how sort of how little, like one, how easy it feels like it should be to get to that, but then how hard it actually is in practice. And so I think I, I'm hopefully going to have a superpower. Like we were one of the first users of, of Stripe, first hundred users or something like that. Um, and that's sort of with a bunch of different startups, just because we were an early tech company. So we would honest, we constantly use stuff, right? like Figma and Notion and Slack, all, all of these kind of things, because we needed to solve problems, right? And so I hope to have like a really good kind of insight into one, picking the right people, because I can see, oh, they're gonna solve this problem. Because as someone who needs this problem solved, like I'm waiting with my credit card here, right? And if I don't have that inclination, I'm not gonna invest. It's like, I'm either gonna be a customer and an investor or neither, right? Sort of no conflict, no interest. Uh, so that's, I think, a big one on the B2B side. I think on the B2C side, I think people really, like I saw this at Pinterest, I, I really believe in Clubhouse. I think that it's gonna work. Uh, and, and the reason is like, you get a sense of like the, the way that the sort of behavior pattern of someone who uses this product and the fact that they want all of their friends on it right now. And not only do they want that, but they're actually gonna go do it, right? Like I, there are all these decks and all these things I get that are like, oh, we have these metrics and this and that. But like, it's just clear that like, they don't really have like that profound, like I need to get my friend on this platform. And like, I think people don't realize how hard that is in, in the sense that like when they see it in a little, you know, a couple instances of that, they put it in their deck and they put it like a testimony on there. They think that's what it is, but really it's like literally, it's like coronavirus. Like everyone that gets it gives it to somebody else kind of thing, right? Like that's what virality virus, right? Like is, and so, like Pinterest, I saw that we had 17,000 users doing 60 million page views a month. Like just the engagement was insane. I saw that at Instagram when they launched, you know, I see that with Clubhouse now where it's like everyone that joins is like, I, I need, I know immediately who to bring on next. And I, I think nothing reaches scale without that, especially on the consumer side, right? Because like, otherwise you're spending money to grow, right? And so you're just not gonna get to billions of people without, you know, 100 million people telling, you know, 900 million people and the 10 million telling the, 100, the 90 million and then the 1 million telling the 9 million, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so I, I think I hope to have like pretty good intuition both on the consumer side and on the B2B side. Um, and I can also help them, right? Because as Gumroad, I can literally pay for the service, integrate them and say, look, this is not where it needs to be. Like if I wasn't, like I'm going to cancel, or I'm not going to pay for this. Um, I think that's good. Like, I really believe in Notion. I think Notion will be a 
you know, $20 billion company someday because it's so essential to government. It, that's it. Like, I have no idea anything other, about the company, but like, the, the, one more thing. Like, I don't think people understand. Like, if I use a product, like, let's say it's the government CEO, I find a product online because I have a problem. I Google for it. I go to their homepage. I read their thing. I sign up. I integrate it, like, which re requires writing some code like putting that in, you know, into our sort of security process, getting that deployed, making sure it works, you know, getting all that code peer reviewed before that and then paying, paying for it, right? And getting value out of it enough that I'm continuing to pay for it. That is an insanely hard thing to do. And in, which means it's an insanely high signal. Like every time that happens, I'm going to email the company and be like, hey, can I put 250K into this company, right? Because it's so rare and it's also so indicative because it's so rare, the companies that get there, it, it means you you basically solve the problem so well and the problem was so, was so it needed to be solved so badly that I just went through that whole funnel, right? Uh, without talking to a single human being, which I think is like an incredibly uh, good signal for, for a company. If you can do that, right? Like I, I should have, when I started using Stripe and like I accepted my first payment on Stripe, I should have been like, can I please give you $10,000? Because I, I didn't realize at that time, like, how how significant it was because as a user that's all i was doing because obviously if i didn't use the service i didn't use the service so every service i used i had to go through that flow to kind of do it but like i used twilio i used stripe i used sendgrid like these you know at the time these were all worth you know low hundreds of millions if that in valuation right um and so i'm hopeful that like just being in the game is going to give you insights like when i when when you know when i meet with with uh with certain people, like, you know, they're like, it was obvious. Like we had the internal numbers, we were in the, in the thing, like Pinterest was obvious. And I just think VC is when you operate at this like distant level, you just don't know, you're like looking at different things. You're looking at like how beautiful the homepage is or like how awesome the team is or like the name and the domain and like these other signals, like their Twitter follower account and like the quality of the content. Like it's like a, it's like a peer reviewed, it's like an academic view. Of it right it's like people being like oh this isn't interesting because donald trump isn't like a you know a career politician and has this and doesn't do this so obviously he's not going to win but that's like the wrong view because the right view is what does the market want the market doesn't give a crap about any of this other stuff like you could have typos all over the homepage. you could have a thing that's laggy it doesn't work in internet explorer all these things that developers might be up on you about but it's like well people are paying for it you know people people need it badly right? Like OnlyFans is like a terrible product, but it's growing like crazy. It will probably be the largest company in this whole space uh, because there's a use, there's a need for that kind of thing, especially right now with COVID and people needing to make money. And like, it's not that great of a product. And guess what? It doesn't even need to be. They will probably be, you know, processing hundreds of millions, billions of dollars a year pretty soon. Uh, and that's, I think, the takeaway from that blog post, right? There was that line that went viral, which is, it doesn't matter how amazing your team is or how fast you ship features, the market you're in is going to determine most of your growth, which I still believe. And I think it really resonated because there are all these people who built these phenomenal products and it was like not enough. And then there are all these people who honestly built terrible products. And Twitter is a great example of this, right? Like Twitter has succeeded despite itself, <laughs> in my opinion. Like, I feel like they made so many mistakes, so many blunders, the fail whale, they were down all the time. They still don't have like certain functionality that people expect. Uh, but the truth is the market needs it. It's just so valuable to people that, you know, it's gonna succeed. It's gonna succeed in despite of all of its failings. 
And then you have other, I know plenty of companies that are phenomenal teams, phenomenal products, like just beautiful. And then no one uses them, right? Because uh, the thing, like the market didn't care. And, and so I think it's just like really being diligent about like, does the market really want this problem solved? And the answer is often like, no, the market works, right? This is kind of the Lindy thing. It's working. Everyone's living. Like coronavirus has, has also not like stopped people from doing what they like to do. It's, people are just going to do what they do. And so they're pretty happy with what's, what the current state of the world is, right? They're like, they're living in it. They're not maybe looking all day long for like new software to use, right? And so, so I, I think people underestimate like how hard it is to reach product market fit. And then also how, how once you reach it, literally like nothing else really matters. Like at that point, you're just scaling, right? So this gets at this question of like community development versus product development, right? And, yeah. and I think that there's a bare bones like set of quality that you have to have on the product side. Like the product has to quote unquote work. It might not doesn't have to be perfect, but it's got to work and, and be functional. Um, but Twitter's, you know, one example, there's many others of like part of Twitter's magic is the product and how it works. But then there's the community side and it's the people who are there and the content they're sharing and, and kind of all of the, the non-product features to it. How do you think about that balance, especially in the earliest stages of a business um, and just kind of when do you optimize for the product building versus more of like the community or the non-product type features that end up pulling people in and holding them there and making it valuable for someone? Yeah, I mean, I think that's super essential, especially on the B2C side. Because the truth is you can, you can send someone a message on Slack, on Twitter, on WhatsApp, on Facebook, on Facebook Messenger, post on their wall. Like there's, there's like hundreds of ways if I wanted to send you a message, email you, uh, et cetera. But each one has a different connotation, right? Like it has a different meaning. It has like a different place in our society and our etiquette. And so I think that's why consumer is so difficult is because people build the products. They're focused you know, like the Y Combinator, make something people want. And everyone obsesses about the something. Like we got to make something awesome, but it's like the people, right? That's super key. And, 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 and really figuring out, I think, who you're building for, who's going to benefit the most from this, right? Like who, who is really has like the deep, deep pain, like who's going to use this first because they need it solved so badly. And then the rest of the world will sort of slowly catch up over time uh, and figuring out like the demographics of that. Right. And, 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 and a community, I think simply is just a group of people that have something in common. Right. So if you find out what that group of people is, they will have something in common. They will be a community by default, right? Building for everybody is just not something anyone does because just not, you know, less than half the world speaks any language, right? So you're already starting with like a max of like a billion, two billion people or whatever when you build the most broad platform ever. Like Coke might have four billion customers or something, right, ever. And nobody else does, right? No tech, tech company does. Um, so I think it's, 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 I was on to Brad actually from first round about this. He's like so many startups they don't even know who their customer is. They still like, they know they've solved the problem. And then it's like, okay, who has this problem? And then it's just like really difficult to even Stripe in the early days. It's like, people are like, oh, this is for developers, right? But like Uber and Airbnb, they're not gonna use Stripe. Like they're gonna use OffNet or like data, you know, first data or like one of these core things. And like Square, right? Square was like we're for farmer's markets and like, you know, like you just, no one knows. Like you think you know the right people, but you just, you know, you, you don't really, it takes a long time to really figure. I mean, Shopify, right? They were a public company at a billion dollars. And it's like, oh, this is for snowboards and like, you know, like 
selling this kind of stuff. And then like, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions in, in GMV uh, businesses are now on Shopify. And it does, I mean, Shopify could probably power Macy's at this point, right? And probably will in like five years. Uh, and so I think, I think people like sort of don't really have a clear view of, of, of who the right customer is. Uh, and I think Pinterest, we did that really well with like sort of Midwestern moms and things like that. Uh, you know, Ben was really savvy about figuring that out. I think Clubhouse has done a really good job of like kind of sort of like built it. Yeah, it sucks if you're not part of it, but like they're really just careful about growing the community over time because I do think it matters. I do think people think, oh, you can just solve the problem and it's great. But it's like, no, you need to know. Twitter needed to know it's for this group of people in the early days. Substack needs to know it's for this group of people in the early days. Um, and, and, and it's also like a, an overhead problem too, right? Because if you don't get the right people, even though they could use it, you now have to train all these new people. They use it very differently. They're affecting the norms in this way. Um, there's like a cultural inertia that builds up and you want to make sure that that is going in the right direction before you onboard all these people. Otherwise it's going to, they're going to sh shift it into this other thing that you really don't want, right? Like Patreon, for example, they see OnlyFans, they see the crazy growth and they've made a conscious decision saying, we don't want to go that route. We don't, you know, we, that's not what we want. And Patreon is big enough that they can kind of do that. But if, you know, Patreon just got started and it just became the default for this kind of thing, like they wouldn't be able to stop it right if that makes sense like there's sort of like the the parasite becomes the host kind of thing right like you want to maintain that um but yeah that's kind of how i think about it and I, I do think like to your point there's this interesting shift you can now do that wasn't really possible five to ten years ago which is you can actually build an audience before you have a product and that's super fascinating because you can actually really figure out who who cares about you who are your super fans what problems do they have uh you know, and then they already know, like, yeah, I'm waiting for him to build it. Like, this is the right person to build the thing. We're all waiting for them to build the thing. I mean, it's even like this venture firm I'm doing, right? Like, it kind of came out of nowhere, but I think it's because I built a community of followers and founders and other investors and designers and engineers and writers who a lot of them followed me because of this journey that I went through. They want to kind of go through a similar thing. And like a big part of that journey might be for some people, certainly not all or even most, but apart for them, some of them, it's like, I need some money to get started. And so now I can go do that. I can kind of, if, you know, I think my fund might be a great example of like a community first kind of business or product, right? Like I didn't go out, I wasn't like, I need to be a VC. I want to be a VC, right? It was like, oh, there are all these people that I want to give money to. And there are all these people who want to give money to people that, but they don't know, they don't, you can't, like, they don't know who these people are. Like, and I can go connect that. I can connect, I'm like a one man marketplace effectively. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I think it's a, and, and really that's a lot of consumer products. Like they're really marketplaces, right? They're like creators and consumers and you're trying to kind of connect them to, to each other. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about crypto and Bitcoin. What are your thoughts there? You, you told a uh, amazing story earlier of a random person at Airbnb named Brian who ended up being the founder <laughs> of Coinbase uh, reaching out to you. But uh, what, what's kind of been your journey with Bitcoin and crypto and kind of where do you sit with it now? Yeah, I bought a bunch, not that early, unfortunately, <laughs> but I have, I have some, uh, I think I, I really do believe that crypto will change everything. Uh, I just think it's like, who knows when, right? It's kind of like that kind of tinkering thing. Like clearly it's, I, at least to me, it seems whenever you have that many smart people interested in something, it's really an inevitability. It's like a bunch of people thinking about food science or, 
any of these things. It's like, it's going to happen. Like clearly there's something here, climate change, et cetera. Like if there's, there's, there's like something with, within smart people that's kind of driving them to this area. Uh, and I just don't know when. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the difficulty with, with something like crypto is it's so fundamental. Like you, you kind of have to build, rebuild everything in crypto in this new model because you kind of, it's like when Gumroad went from like the, you know, the VC back to the non, I had to go down to zero. You're kind of, you have to kind of like build like new nation states and new cities and new sort of economic infrastructure and new, you know, regulations and new everything effectively to kind of a new police force that, you know, like all of these things have to be thought of in a very different way. And I think it's inevitable. Like I really believe like anything that looks the same pre-internet and post-internet is, is, is sort of, is not going to look the same for, for much longer, right? Like the internet is software is eating the world. It's sort of like going to change everything that it touches eventually uh, because it's just so fundamental as, as an innovation, uh, as an invention. And, and I mean, like I can look outside my window and like everything looks roughly the same as it looked 40 years ago. You know, there's like roads and there's fences and there's cars with four wheels and there's a pool and there's, you know, buildings or whatever and like telephone poles. Right. And like, that's not, that's not going to be the view outside my window 50 years from now. Right. There's going to be like drones flying around and like weird looking car things. And like, I don't know who knows, you know, like I'm sure all of this, a lot of this stuff is just going to go away. Like there might not be roads. We might just, who knows? I don't know. Uh, but my guess is that all the, all of this stuff is going to change. And in a world like going back to that liquidity thing, I just think increased liquidity is so, so important. And I think what crypto does is it just massively increases liquidity because it allows everyone to become a financial player and then sort of to transact directly all the time. Uh, and I, yeah, I think, you know, people always talk about like taxes, like taxation is theft or whatever, right? And like, but if you think about it, like a huge amount of America is, is sort of credit card based and every credit card transaction has roughly two to 3% uh, tacked onto it, right? And so that's a two to three percent tax that, like, effectively all of us are paying every time we use Postmates or Uber, which, by the way, like, is a much larger percentage of our economy than it's ever been. Uh, and so I just think, like, clearly that's a middleman that will go away eventually. Like, it's just an inevitability to me that that will, you know, that will go away. I mean, someone who runs Gumroad, I mean, I see it. I'm like, yeah, obviously there's going to be a future where. You know, you can go to any website and pay the person directly. Like you wouldn't even pay Gumroad, right? You would pay the creator directly and then Gumroad, because we're facilitating it, you know, there'd be a, sort of a smart contract or something that would allow us to get this, you know, this kind of thing, uh, some percent or whatever. It's just, it's just inevitable. Like I, I, I think in the future, Gumroad won't even need to exist, you know, because like it will become so liquid that even the middleman that we disintermediated, we, we will be a middleman that gets disintermediated. Like it, that's inevitable to me. Uh, and that's great. That's a good thing. I'm not attached. I don't need to be a, like, if we can solve the problem to a point where we don't need to exist, like that's awesome. Right. Like that would be great for me. And, and help me, help me understand how you guys have thought about that uh, in terms of like, take Bitcoin, for example, uh, yeah. accept Bitcoin, don't accept Bitcoin. Have you tried it before? Just take yeah. dollars. Like, like how has that been? Yeah, we, we just currently just stick to dollars. I think the, the biggest issue we have with, with supporting Bitcoin is everyone that wants Bitcoin wants to get paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> That's the issue that we have is like we get creators all day long. They're like, hey, we want crypto. And I'm like, all you got to do is find me five people that want to pay in Bitcoin and I'll build it. Because the truth is everyone wants it. No one wants to give it, right? Uh, and so I think that sort of like, 
the problem with Bitcoin is it is so interesting and it is so, it's sort of an investment vehicle, right? Uh, for, for, for folks that like, it doesn't have, it's not like USD or something where, and I know there's sort of like USD coins and stuff like that that I think are interesting too. But I, I think that that's sort of like the fundamental issue is that people, people, there's this like supply demand problem where everyone wants it. No one wants to give it to anybody else. No one wants to be the person who bought a pizza for, you know, one Bitcoin or 50 Bitcoin, whatever it was. Uh, and so I, I think there's that sort of risk aversion that everyone is kind of very fearful of. So, I mean, it might not even be Bitcoin. It might be like a, a new fork or something like that to kind of, you know, solve some of these other problems. But I do, I still, I still believe it's inevitable, right? And that might require like the browsers that we used to be different and like, you know, like the, the but it seems, yeah. I, what I tell people is like when my mom wants to pay with Bitcoin, I'm sold, right? Like the minute, again, like the market wants what it wants. And the minute the market wants to pay with Bitcoin, like we'll support it, you know, the next day. And my guess is we'll support Apple Pay and other things that we'll just, we won't even have to think about it eventually that like it just is handled by Stripe or Apple or whatever. And it's just a part of nature of doing business. Uh, and I'm just really fascinated. Like I, I actually think one of the things, this is like kind of a tangent, but one of the things I'm really interested in with self-driving cars is, is the sort of uh, the nexus problem, right? Which is basically if you start if everyone has self-driving cars, my, my, my guess is people are going to be a lot more mobile and going to move around a lot more. Like, for example, if you're an NBA player, you basically have to file taxes in like 50 states or whatever, right? Because you're, you're sort of making revenue and doing your job in all these different places. And there's people that just like do this for NBA players, right? And every sort of athlete. Uh, and, and eventually, if with self-driving cars and this sort of like other future, uh, this new future, like that's going to happen. That that's going to happen to a lot more people and you're going to have to start collecting taxes. Like right now, for example, you can get a bunch of stock in California, working in California, and then you can like move to Florida and then the company IPOs and you, you pay no taxes to Florida, right? Or whatever. Um, and so like, that's an inefficiency in the market that will eventually get resolved. And my guess is that like one of the accelerants to that is going to be all these people moving around all the time. And a lot of these transactions are going to have to be kind of like at point of sale. Right. Where it's like, where were you at the time? And the way that, you know, that sort of tax and all these things are collected, that's all visible on that transaction. It's not per transaction amount. It's not like every once a year you pay your taxes kind of thing. Uh, I believe at some point that will be the future we live in. Uh, and the, the really interesting thing about that is then you can unbundle the government, right? Because you can actually see like, oh, this is, it's not just like all this money going into like this account and then the Fed kind of decides what they want to do with it. They, it's really like, oh, you paid for coffee at this place. This much goes to the, to the city. This much goes to the county. This much goes to the, you know, to the Fed, or not even the Fed directly, but it goes directly into, you know, this the military or like, you know, uh, Department of Homeland Security or whatever it is. And then people should be able to see that, right? Because I think people don't have a problem paying taxes. It's just like when you walk down the road and you see a bunch of construction, and you have no idea what the hell is going on. It's like that opaqueness that I think irritates people. If people were like, oh, this is cool. This is like what the government, like what I get for this, this money, great, right? Uh, I think it would be great. But, but I think, yeah, that whole crypto, is, it feels to me like a fundamental importance. Like I was reading this book about uh, the genome and like, you know, like the sort of bodies are, bodies are kind of a decentralized, they feel centralized, but like there's sort of this decentralized like bottoms up approach to solving problems that has taken billions of years, right? And, and, and they're very efficient, like decentralized bottoms up sort of organisms or, or companies or whatever are much, are much better at solving problems because 
they're sort of anti-fragile. Like the head can get cut off and these other things can keep going. And, and you don't have this problem where you have someone who sort of builds power over time and sort of like it's trying, you know, it's sort of in service of themselves instead of the, the whole organism, et cetera, right? Um, and so I just really believe that humanity in the future, if we want to get to whatever the, the paragon of civilization is, it will be decentralized, right? It's like the fundamental problem with communism is you have to have someone who enforces equality, right? Like how do you, that's a kind of oxymoronic. And the only way you can really do that is by literally never giving anyone that much power. It has to just be built into the model that like no one can do certain things, in my opinion. Uh, and I'm sure there are experts and I'm getting a lot of this wrong and I, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But like that idea is really interesting to me, that sort of decentralized bottoms up sort of, and, and the internet's gonna allow for that, right? Because like bef before you kind of needed the bundling because you needed the economies of scale to kind of solve certain problems at certain scale. But if you can really increase the liquidity and the transparency and everyone can see everything, uh, I just think just like you can have a startup that solves a problem with five people or one person instead of a hundred or 200, right? Cause you don't have to give DVDs and deal with shipping fulfillment. And like all of these things are just handled by other people. And those people make more money than they would if they were working at your own company. That's kind of like firm outside insider firm thing. Uh, it's just going to be better. It's just like going to lead to a much more efficient sort of system, uh, systems of government governance, you know, everyone's going to be safer. Like I, I, I just think ultimately, like a decentralized something is gonna be better than the decentralized version of it, right? Just like the internet is better than like your local library or something like that, right? Like the, you're getting billions of people to curate for you instead of like three, right? I, I think that you're more right than wrong, right? I mean, all the, the details are, are where the nuance is, but, but for sure, yeah. I think that you're more right than wrong. Um, before I get into the rapid fire set of questions, uh, somebody asked, what is some popular advice that you hear often that you think is wrong or it sucks? Like what, what is the advice that gets shared all the time and you think people maybe shouldn't actually listen to it or it's uh, misleading? Yeah, I, I think there's, it's, it's ironic because I feel like I helped contribute to this, uh, but there's this like make a living doing what you love, right? There's this a creator economy. I think Gumroad, we kind of invented the term make a living doing what you love not that that really means anything but uh there's i think there's this idea that like you should only pursue the things that you love and are passionate about uh you know like involves says like you, you know find the thing that you that you do endlessly effortlessly or whatever and i i think there are things like that for some people but there are a lot of things that i think i'm really good at and i love doing but it's like the it's a cause and effect switched. It's like I am really good at doing it, which is why I love doing it. But there was a period of time where I wasn't good at it, and I kind of pushed through, and it became good at it, and then started like I love the idea of it, and I knew that if I got good enough at it, I would also I would just love it entirely. Does that make sense? Right? Like there's just like growth is uncomfortable, right? Like your your body doesn't like to expend energy; it doesn't need to expend, right? Sort of like survival of the, the fittest or whatever, right? Like it's sort of a defense mechanism and, you know, just in case. And, uh, and I think the same thing with a lot of these, like you don't need to learn how to paint. You don't need to learn these skills to survive. And so I think it does hurt. It do and so I think there's like sometimes this rhetoric, especially because the, the successful people often are the ones that say it all the time, right? Like, are like, no, you should only do what you love and only work this much. And like, you should prioritize your family and your friends and, and, Ultimately, there is like a sort of a two marshmallow kind of thing, right? Like ultimately, 
you do probably want to work a little bit harder than most people do if you want to get to some point. And you might not like doing a lot of the things, right? Like I think being a solo founder was like the best thing ever because I had to learn everything. Like starting this fund, yeah, there's like a lot of weird stuff that I don't care about, but like I learned those things and those things inherently because they're annoying to learn, like very few people learn them. And so like I can talk about this kind of fun stuff and like teach people and gain an audience from doing that and founders like me for doing that. And I might, they might want to let me onto their, you know, cap table because of that. And so I just think it's like, it's sort of beneficial. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's, there's just like this rhetoric. I think that like, you need to love all the bits of it, like writing. No, dude, like writing sucks sometimes, man. Like I'll stare at this thing and be like, I don't want to do this. I don't like doing it. But, but, but then I post something and it does really well and everyone loves it and it feels amazing. And the worry I have is that people think that that is like, that, that, that was like a labor, like just love. It was just like, oh, I love, you know, it's like, no, it's like brutal, like working through this thing, outlining it, re-editing it. Like they don't see the seven, eight, nine drafts of like, oh, this didn't work. It wasn't effortless at all, actually for me, right? Like it was brutally difficult and it got better and I could see, and I had the confidence because I'd done it before that I would get through it eventually. Uh, but yeah, I just think there's that, that kind of like that advice that people share because it sounds good, but it's like, no, sometimes you just, you know, you just need to spend a couple of years, you know, being bad. I think that's fair. Uh, two questions and then you get to ask me one to wrap up. The first is what is the most important book that you've ever read? I really liked, uh, how to win friends and influence people, which has a terrible title, <laughs> But I loved that book. I, maybe it's just because I was not a good person like before I read that book or something. And some people are like, this is all obvious. I was like, damn, <laughs> my bad. Uh, but I really like that book. I think it really helped me think about like other people in my conversations, you know, like you, it's so easy to, like you, like you have a different person. It's like when you hear yourself talk, right? Like you realize like, oh my gosh, like the, I'm a very different person. Like I'm inverted. <laughs> like there are all these things about, the way other people sort of like interface with me that I've never thought about. And that book really like helped me think about like, Oh wow. Like I'm actually, I'm just like an NPC in somebody else's story. Right. Like they don't think about me. Like, like I know all these things going around in my head and, and sort of my environment. And it just really made me aware that like, I, I, sh I, I really don't matter to anybody else. Like I, I'm, I'm like a little person that gives them a quest or gives them some money or whatever, but they're, they're they they care about them. Right. And maybe a couple other people, but re their family or something like that. So that, that book, I think, really helped me kind of like sort of like get humble, I guess, about it and be like, no, my, my job is to like provide value and then like go on my way. And I don't have to like pretend that it's some grand relationship that we have, you know, it's been really freeing. It, it's one of the best books in the world and most popular for a reason, for sure. Uh, aliens, believer or non-believer? I am definitely a believer. Why? Yeah. I, you'd have to be so cocky to think that <laughs> that there's only one of one planet and we're the we got lucky you know it's like it's like when you win the lottery or something you know it's just like no like there's probably my guess is that there are, there are a lot of them uh they might be really far away uh but man i yeah i just want to be hopeful man like you know like i imagine that like thinking about the sort of the, the crazy future right like what it you know like there was a time where like we were discovering new human beings on earth like how crazy would that be to like just be like holy crap there's like a whole group of people here that 
are like us that we like, but in other ways are totally not and speak a different language and all these things. And like, my guess is how cool would it be to have that happen on an interstellar level, right? Like at some point in the future to like, and that would be freaking scary. I mean, I can't imagine like how nerve wracking that would be for both, you know, like if, if we get there, but like, I don't know, I'm hopeful for that happening at some point in the future. It'd be amazing. I, I feel like we need to start thinking about, is it, uh, are we going to discover the aliens or the aliens going to discover us? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you get, you get asked me one question to finish up. What do you got for me? Yeah. I mean, how do you think about, I mean, you do so many different types of content, which is awesome. Like, how do you, like, have you thought about like what's next in terms of like the type type of content and like how you, yeah. Like, how do you think about exploring, you know, new mediums and things like that, especially with COVID and like, yeah, I think that there's like major inflection points. So like audio was one, right? There's kind of this resurgence on video. You see Spotify adding like video podcasts, which is really just a video. Uh, yeah. YouTube's kind of you know popular. You get the TikToks and, and things like that. So the major ones I think are what people really focus on because they're the easy ones to see. But the micro um, kind of evolutions, if you will, in content, I think are much more interesting. And, and actually that's where a lot of the value gets captured. So if you think about um, in written form right now, like you've got Eric Stromberg um, doing these like screenshot essays, right? And then Patrick O'Shaughnessy with Invest Like the Best, like they've now incorporated it um, and they're calling on business cards, right? But there's just this idea of like, hey, wait a second, there's something between a tweet and like a blog post and it literally fits all on the screen of an iPhone. Right. And like, that's, that's a pretty interesting, like nuanced thing. If you look at, um, you know, audio, you could say all of the podcasts and like that whole rise. Well, Clubhouse is kind of like a micro kind of live drop in version of really kind of a podcast and, you know, conference call kind of mixed together or whatever. And so as you kind of go through the micro pieces of these types of content, it just feels like that's where a lot of the, the value gets captured. What I think is much harder to, to understand is um, when it relates to content, like where are the platforms that are going to accrue a lot of the value versus um, kind of the non-venture backable type, just content providers, right? So the screenshot essays, not really a venture backable type business, but if there was a platform that then aggregated them all and created a marketplace and a follow graph and you know what I mean? Like, okay, like there's a, there's something else there. And so I think that it's, you got to see the micro evolution happen in a certain type of media format and then really look for like the platform type companies. Um, but at the end of the day, like I, I think you and I see very kind of eye to eye on, uh, I call them personal media companies where people just build these massive audiences, maybe multi-platform or may not be. Uh, and then they're going to go and they're going to create products, right? And whether that's a physical product, like you see you know, kind of YouTube star selling merchandise, or you see people actually creating software, or you see the Kim Kardashians and Kylie Jenner's creating makeup, like they're going to sell products through that audience. And, uh, and as they do that, I think you're going to see really, really valuable companies get built over time. Yeah. How do you think about GPT-3 to throw another question? <laughs> so I'm not technical, right? And so in kind of a, a, at a high level, like it looks like magic. As you kind of unpack more and more of kind of the use cases and you see everything from the, you know, learn from anyone or the Figma design, you know, all, all these kind of applications we've all seen flying around on Twitter. Um, it feels like we're teetering on the edge of being able to use this stuff in production for real products built on top of it. 
but we maybe we're not quite there yet. Like, like we're really, really damn close. And I think that's why everyone's kind of like leaning in and excited about it. Um, the other piece of it uh, to me that's really interesting is can you basically start to use it to, uh, to put it in people's hands so they can start using it for things you and I can't imagine, right? So already like I've seen five or six demos online or prototypes where I'm like, I would have never thought of that, yeah. right? And so it's like, you know, you, you kind of talked about it earlier. It's just like, we don't know what it becomes. And so just like get it in as many different yeah. types of people's hands as possible and like, just let them like go to work, right? And then you and I will turn around and be like, whoa, did you see this? Or did you see that? And we'll be like, damn, that was pretty cool. And yeah. that's how I think real innovation and, and value gets uh, gets created. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. I have no idea. I see it. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> I would love to integrate it into Gumroad somehow. I don't know what it looks like, but yeah, it's going to be like obvious, you know, like a year from now. It's like, oh, of course, that's the... Okay. Absolutely. Where, yeah. uh, where, can, where can we send people to find you online, learn more about Gumroad or uh, or the investing um, side? Yeah, I mean, follow me on Twitter. That's the best place, at SHL. I also have a Gumroad newsletter, gumroad.com forward slash Sahil, where I kind of write once a month about just like all the random stuff, Gumroad, the fun, other things in my life. Um, yeah, those are the, sort of the two the two best places to find me. Awesome, man. Well, listen, we went almost two hours. You're mm -hmm. a legend. Uh, we are definitely going to have to do this again. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for doing it, man. Glad to have up.